Austin Hankowitz, welcome back to the Investing Experts podcast. You are famous on the internet. You host Rich Habits podcast, writer for Seeking Alpha, someone we follow regularly on the podcast, somebody that's been with us before talking about his portfolio and how he sees the markets. Austin, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really, really excited to be here on this episode. For those of you who might not recognize me, uh, I'm a podcaster. I also create short form video content. I'm the author of my rate of return newsletter on Substack. But more importantly, I share monthly analysis over here on Seeking Alpha as well. And my entire focus over the last, I call it 12 to 18 months, has been building up passive income in my portfolio. I sort of publicly introduced this idea, Rena, um, back in early 23, which was I wanted to build a $2 million dividend growth portfolio from scratch completely publicly. We talked about that on the last episode of this podcast. And as a quick update, it's hanging around a $250,000 value right now, which is really exciting. But again, the entire goal of this portfolio is to generate monthly income. So I'm uh, I'm excited to jump into updates, share my thoughts on the markets, specific call-outs, however you want to steer this episode. Yeah, I think it might make the most sense to start broad picture how you're looking at the markets and then kind of use that as a jumping off point to see how you're how you've updated the portfolio based on how you're looking at the markets and thinking about things. That sound good to you? Yeah, of course. So, you know, I think um the first big theme I have right now in my brain and this was sort of a theme that we talked about last episode as well, but it has to do with cash flow, right? Profitability and cash flow. 2022 we saw the stock market collapse because a lot of these especially unprofitable technology companies and even the big you know magnificent seven names even you know they weren't exactly called that in 22 but i mean we saw meta stock collapse google amazon apple they were all you know trading down 20 30 50 60% and that's because they overhired they weren't exactly focused on profitability but instead focused on growth and we were obviously in this zero interest rate environment so you know everyone was focused on growth well i would think think that now 23 we saw sort of that flip there of wait a second the market's now beginning to give a little bit more sort of assign value rather to companies who are focused on profitability and cash flow so in my opinion now looking forward to you know 2024 those are the things i'm looking at if i i fully believe that if you can predict the cash flow you can predict the stock price i'm not saying that you can predict it one to one here but if you have general you know ideas that a company's operating cash flow, free cash flow, free cash flow margin, things like that are going to trend higher over time. I would also argue that the stock price will reflect that in a positive way over the same period of time. We saw that with Meta. We've seen that with Salesforce. And I think we'll begin to now see that with DraftKings and Sentinel One. Um, I think those are two names recently that have been exciting to me because you know, you think about these sort of new SPAC, newly IPO'd companies that we saw in 2020, 2021. Of course, the markets didn't know how to value them, right? The stock prices were all over the place. And we saw that, you know, with all these unprofitable technology names, and some of them never bounced back, right? They really, really didn't. While other companies focused on inching toward profitability, 
inching toward operational cash flow, things of that nature. Sentinel One's a great example of that, a cybersecurity company I really like. DraftKings, you know, they just acquired uh, Jackpocket, which is sort of this like lottery sort of mobile game um, for $750 million. But they did that with, uh, they did that because their adjusted EBITDA came in so much higher than expected this quarter. is about 22% higher than Wall Street's expectations when you sort of get rid of this like unusual customers were very lucky during the quarter, right? But I think that's just a testament to what these companies can do with this extra money after they're able to prove um, that it's there and and they can operate in a profitable manner. So I'm really excited about that. I'd say something else I just want to quickly touch on for a second theme. I'm not sure if this is 24, Rena, 25 or 26, but I think I'd kick myself in the future if I didn't mention it now, which is humanoids. Oh my goodness. I think we're in Here this we 10 go. Year super cycle. <laughs> Here we go. I know, right? I think we're in this massive super cycle as it relates to artificial intelligence. And we're seeing that now in the software side, of course, but I also think we're going to see it in the physical world over the next, I don't know if that's 26, 27, 29. I have no idea when it's going to happen, right? Next two, five, seven years. But the total addressable market for these humanoids is just in these several hundred billions of dollars. Of course, Tesla is trying to figure out what's going on there. I'm not saying that's a, a good idea um, to invest in Tesla stock or not. But I definitely think it's something that everyone should be doing a little bit more research on. And the last thing I wanted to sort of talk about as it relates to the markets now in 2024, and Rena, I'm sure you you might have a perspective on this as well, but it's the Russell 2000, right? It's kind of weirdly undervalued. I mean, you know, let me kind of explain to you the price action of the Russell 2000 over the last sort of three times that it has dra- dramatically underperformed the S&P, so call it negative 15% in the same period uh, of the S&P hitting an all-time high. So in 1985, the Russell 2000 was down 13%. The S&P gained 17% the next year in 1986. um, And the Russell 2000 gained 18%. So it outperformed. 1991 was the same story, outperformed by some 15, 17% the following year. And then the Russell 2000 did a similar sort of leapfrog by 16% in outperformance in 1999. And again, these were years where the Russell 2000, like we saw in 2023, was in a bear market, while the S&P 500 was printing fresh all-time highs, right? Doing very well. So the following year is what I'm talking about, right? Where that Russell 2000 catches up and even outperforms what the S&P has done. So I know that was a lot. I'll, I'll pause here, but those were three big things that I'm focused on in 2024 as it relates to the stock market. No, it's interesting that your last point with Russell 2000 and small caps, and it's something that we've talked about before on the podcast, Courage and Conviction Investing focuses on that. And he talked about the kind of transitory nature sometimes of what's happening in small caps and how to best address that as investors. What would you say to investors is the most meaningful thing to you about that and how they should be navigating before we get to more specifics on your portfolio? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, and I'm not going to pretend like I'm betting the mark or bet, betting the farm rather on the Russell 2000. I'm certainly not. But I, and, and that's the sort of sentiment I'd, I'd share with other investors listening right now, right? It's like this is a historical trend, right? The Russell 2000 is sort of full of these unprofitable technology companies, a little bit of biotech, right? Like these companies got crushed in 22 and 
largely 23 was driven by MAG7. You know, you kind of look at the S&P 493 didn't perform nearly as well as the top seven, right? So the Russell 2000 sort of in that group. And I'm I'm sort of kind of leaning back to my first point of profitability and cash flow, right? If the Russell 2000 and the names inside of there can begin to inch toward profitability, albeit at a slower pace than the S&P 500 names have certainly been able to do, um, you know, in, in more cash flow, I, I think that's sort of what I'm focused on. Um, and again, not doing this in a bet the farm fashion, but more as something in a five to seven percent weighting in my personal portfolio. Appreciate that. So given how you're looking at the markets, what are some of the deep dives into your portfolio updates that you can share with investors right now? Yeah, I think the first update, I kind of I kind of want to brag on this one, Rena, because this Do one it. gets me really excited. The first one is SPYI, right? This is the NEOS High Income S&P 500 ETF. We talked about this in August. I told you that, you know, SPYI is an equivalent, they're a peer rather of XYLD and JEPI. Well, I did an awesome breakdown for 2023 full year performance of SPYI, XYLD, and JEPI. Not only did this ETF outperform JEPI and XYLD by 8.3 and 7.1% respectively in 2023, they did so in a very tax-efficient manner. Now, remember, SPYI is a covered call ETF that aims to track the total performance of the S&P 500 while, of course, optimizing for tax-efficient income. So what they do there is they, well, a couple of things, I'll break down the strategy. Um, but first, let's talk about sort of, you know, what that means, aiming to get the total performance. Did they capture the entire 26% total return of the S&P last year? No, of course not, right? Covered call ETFs don't exactly achieve that, but they captured 70% of that at an 18.1% total return, which is way better again than that 8.3, uh, I'm sorry, um, which outperforms rather JEPI and XYLD by 8.3 and 7.1. And they did this by delivering a 12% yield on my money, which is really, really exciting. Now you might be asking, why did they outperform JEPI and XYLD? What's going on here? The reason they outperformed JEPI specifically was they hold the Magnificent Seven. Jeppy, I think, only holds two of those names, Microsoft and maybe Amazon. There's, uh, I did the analysis a couple months ago. I haven't looked at the holdings, but they only held two of those names in 2023. Um, SPYI held all seven of them because, again, they uh, hold all the same weightings of the S&P 500 in their ETF. And number two, the second reason they outperformed is because they wrote out of the money covered call option contracts on their holdings. XYLD writes at the money, right? And and you know, we saw some crazy you know, price appreciation in the S&P. And if you're writing at the money covered call option contracts, um, you don't get to realize that upside in your sort of value there. So because they wrote contracts out of the money, they were able to outperform again XYLD by about 7%. And they delivered a 2% higher yield during the year than XYLD. So, you know, what am I excited about here in 2024? Obviously, that SPYI update is awesome. I'm going to continue to hold SPYI as an income-focused investor in 2024. But I don't know if you saw this news yet, Rena, but I think it was just about a month ago, the NEOS team, right, this awesome team that's just crushing it, 
has introduced a new ETF, QQQI, which is the NASDAQ-focused, right? So it's the same data-driven strategy as SPYI, the same Section 1256 contracts, the same out-of-the-money options. Everything's the same, except now it's offering investors like myself exposure to the NASDAQ 100. And as a 27-year-old investor, I certainly want exposure to the NASDAQ over a long period of time. So I'm really excited about that. I'm holding out for that 14% annual distribution yield on QQQI. Fingers crossed on that. It hasn't been announced exactly what that is yet. But I mean, we just look over at QILD and their eight billion in AUM or you know, JEPQ, you know, several billion as well. So it's like there's obviously a demand for these. And so I just hope that investors, you know, kind of take what I shared in uh, SPYI and learn that you don't have to be married, right, to a specific ETF. You might see JEPI or you might see XYLD, but I encourage folks to think about um, different ways that um, other investors like myself are generating yield in our portfolios and outperforming theirs while in a tax-efficient manner, which is really exciting. Being focused on dividends, when you're talking about these ETFs, how would you assess basically different... um, you know, investors at different points in their lives, how would you advise them in terms of going after these specific points in the market? Wow, that's such a good question. Because, you know, to my personal experience here, I've got about $250,000 in this, what will become a $2 million dividend growth portfolio. Again, I'm in my late 20s. And I've decided that I do not want to have all 100% of this money. And I made this decision last year invested into pure dividend growth stocks and covered call ETFs and income producing equities because I am again I'm I'm young I've got 30 more years of good solid investing in front of me and I don't need to be sort of putting a ceiling on myself of only investing into what has historically been Rena these sort of boring names that pay dividends and you know of course you know think your Costcos and things like that so um how I approach it it's kind of funny here right I actually back in I think it was February or March I put about fifty thousand dollars into Bitcoin um, inside of this dividend growth portfolio because I follow cryptocurrency very closely. I knew the ETFs were um, coming in, in 23 and 24. So that has obviously paid off great. It's it's more than doubled at this point, which is really exciting. But that's also the type of perspective I take, right? I'm also in um, Mag7. I'm also in cybersecurity like Sentinel-1. I'm also in the DraftKings. And you know I do have these other names. And to answer your question more specifically here, right, if I was an investor who's trying to figure out, you know, what do I want to do as it relates to income versus capital appreciation, risk tolerance, things of that nature, I think there's two questions I'd ask myself. One, how long is my investment horizon going forward? And by that, I mean, like, do you have, like me, 20, 30, 40 years of investing ahead of you where, you know, you can stomach some volatility like we saw in 2022, like we saw in 2020, like we will see, I'm sure, in the coming years ahead. You can stomach some of that volatility knowing that, you know, cash flow is doing well and will continue to recover. Profits will continue to move up and to the right, causing some of these more volatile names to maybe outperform, have higher beta, right, than the S&P. And then the second question I'd ask is, how important is it to you to generate income in your portfolio? I mean, to me, I hope to, Rena, over the next, call it 10 to 12 years, completely replace my monthly expenses of, call it five or 6,000 a month now with portfolio income generated by either covered call option contracts that I write myself, covered call ETFs, uh, ETFs like SCHD, other dividend paying stocks, 
I want to have a portfolio that can help me replace those um, sort of monthly expenses. And that's very important. Therefore, I want to get there. But to other people, maybe they aren't there, right? Maybe they want that upside or, you know, a little bit more volatility if it's with NVIDIA or Tesla or things of that nature, right? Oh my gosh, do I wish I had put a bunch of money in NVIDIA last year and even more this year? Of course I do, right? But I've got my own sort of risk tolerance here. I've got my own long-term playbook. And I just think that everyone, you know, should absolutely sort of have that conversation with themselves of, again, what's my time horizon? How much volatility? can I, you know, sort of um, be comfortable with? And then how does that turn into income over, uh, you know, a, a long period of time? I'm curious because we're talking about what you are focused on as somebody paying attention to the markets and doing a really nice job of articulating that to investors, especially retail investors. How would you articulate where not to invest your money right now and why? Do you have a kind of Ooh. thoughts there? Well, it's kind of funny, Rena. I am a big believer in like this quote of like, I will not invest my money to things I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand three things. And this might be like super embarrassing for me to say because people are like, why don't you understand those things? They're pretty straightforward. Those why three things are- Why don't you know are, everything, Austin? I know, right? It, I know. But the first one is banks. I don't I don't know bank stocks. I simply don't. There's so many different types of ratios they use and there's just a bunch of like different variables if it relates to interest rates and debt and like there's there's a lot that I don't understand with bank stocks. So I don't touch those. The second thing I don't understand very well are airline stocks. There's weather, there's the price of oil, there's a bunch of different things that are sort of eating away or be, you know being massive variables to those names. Then the last one's biotechnology companies. I don't freaking know about DNA and different types. Like I just, it's not my thing. So to answer your question, like specifically around kind of where people should not be or should be thinking as it relates to their investments, I just always want to encourage people to invest in what they know and to not be afraid to ask the stupid questions and to always be as open and honest with yourself as to like, wait a second, am I buying this because I have a underlying investment thesis in the company? I've done my research. I know what, or I have predictions and models rather of what I think the company is going to do over the coming three, five, seven years. Or am I buying this because I saw someone write about it on X or a YouTube video or a Seeking Alpha article that I kind of understood but didn't really understand because I don't understand the industry, right? Like I just want people to be honest with themselves as investors and, and it's okay to not have the crazy 47 different names in your portfolio and instead only have six because those six are the ones you understand most. I would even argue that's a better strategy. And would you say that there are metrics to stay away from or there are better metrics to use or do you find it specific to sector and industry more than, you know, kind of general thoughts about metrics? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I would say generally speaking, I'm always looking at free cash flow per share. I'm always looking at operating cash flow. Again, I just cash flow. Seriously, I think if people can focus on the cash flow produced by the company and they can begin to model out what that cash flow might look like over time, then they'll be able to better understand or generally predict where they think the stock price could be headed. I mean, of course, there's a bunch of different variables around this as it relates to like, you know, Meta just had some awesome announcements regarding, you know, share buybacks and dividends and it's kind of funny if you look at Meta's stock price in relation to free cash flow per share, um, it follows it perfectly, right? So 
I think from a general metric, of course, I want to see revenue growth. Of course, I want to see you know gross margins expanding and profits expanding and all these other different things. But as an investor, I'm always the first thing I'm always looking at is okay, is this company printing free cash flow for their investors? How does that cash flow stack up to years in the past? What does that look like on a cash flow per share perspective? That's sort of the the general like where I always start. And of course, it's you know sector specific. If the company is not profitable, are they inching toward profitability from an operating cash flow perspective, an operating income perspective? Is the is the company um, operating? even you know from a high level in a secular growth trend right cybersecurity certainly is that we saw that with palo alto networks crowdstrike names of that nature and I, i'm i'm equally now as bullish on you know sentinel one as one of those names right so is this company operating in a secular growth trend that's going to propel their revenue growth further into the future here or is it something that was maybe like a one-off thing who you know everything to sort of look at there is is really intricate but again Cash flow is what I care about as a novice, twenty-seven-year-old fundamental investor. Given your focus on cash flow, anything to say about all the layoffs that we're seeing, you know, across sectors, across companies, and what that means for these companies going forward? Yeah, I think. Um, generally and maybe speaking, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but and maybe what you think of that as a strategy for for companies? Yeah, totally. You know, I think. Google is probably the best example of this, right? I don't have their earnings releases right in front of me, but you know, I think they went from like 90,000 employees to like 180, 190,000 in 18 months. And now they're back down to like 130, 140,000 and they laid off. Oh my gosh, they laid off 50,000 employees. Like, oh my gosh, well it's like, yeah, they doubled their workforce, right? Like and they did that in, in a year and a half. Um, you know, I think the layoffs are unfortunately just a miscalculation of overhiring um that happened during the zerp era right 21 um 22 and then now we saw a lot of that in 22 and 23 and i think it's going to continue here in 24. you know a name uh, well i guess before I, I i share with you this name to answer your question more specifically i think that it's a i'm not mad at the strategy of optimizing your workforce to ensure that profitability and cash flow stays positive or will inch closer to positive. I think it's a fine strategy. And that's, again, why we see a lot of stock prices go into the green the day that they announce layoffs. You know, you think that that's a bad thing. Oh my gosh, this company is laying off X percent of their workforce when in actuality, you know, Elon Musk laid off a majority of Twitter employees. And I mean, I'm not saying that the company's flourishing, but my tweets still get published and I still can use all the products. Therefore, it seems like maybe they overhired, right? I mean, like that's the type of mindset I think a lot of these companies adopted in twenty late 22 and most of 23. We saw that with um, countless technology companies, Google being one of the most popular there as they laid off, I think, you know, tens of thousands of employees. But to kind of parlay that question into a stock I'm excited about because they did have layoffs uh, pretty recently, um, that's Salesforce, Rena. So there's a ton of reasons actually why I'm bullish on Salesforce, right? Their management team, continued rollout of new products, their operating margins, their cash flow, you name it. But specifically, I read a report uh, that came out last week that really caught my attention as we head now into 2024 and sort of get excited about what earnings could look like. So Bank of America released a report just the other day stating 
meeting, they've spoken with a dozen key Salesforce partners over the last few weeks, and all of their feedback suggests deal activity has been holding steady and the macro backdrop continues to improve marginally. Now, despite challenging sales cycles, a few key trends really stood out to them. The first one was healthy service cloud deal activity. The second one was sort of this balanced results across the company's major verticals with some modest upticks in their financials verticals. And the third one being the growing interest in their data cloud product. Now, remaining performance obligations, I think, are going to grow by about 10% uh, here as we look toward 24. Um, you know, call it 12% revenue growth estimates is, is kind of what Wall Street's looking at as well. Um, I'm also modeling for about 150 basis point expansion in their operating margin. Uh, you know, back to your point, Rena, we know the company laid off workers recently and they're laser focused now on that profitability and free cash flow. And so I think. Sort of some of that will be positively reflected in the income statement. Again, I'm a huge believer in this idea of, of you, if you can predict the cash flow, you can generally predict the direction of the stock price. And I really believe Salesforce is going to see a 20 to 30% free cash flow growth uh, compounded annually over the coming years, especially if they're able, Rena, to lock in on a sales efficiency ratio consistent with other large cap peers. So get this, for added context, Salesforce's sales and marketing expense to incremental revenue is 3.1x, whereas their peers are, are half of that at 1.5x, right? They're making money, they're making their money back on the sales and marketing expense much faster, right? The peers are than Salesforce. And I really think that ratio from Salesforce is going to begin to compress over the coming years in a very good way for the company. Um, so yeah, Salesforce is a name I'm excited about here in 24 and 25. And to your point, some layoffs definitely help with that excitement. No, that's a nice that's nice context. Does any or what does worry you about Salesforce if you had to take the risk profile side? It's a good question. Um, I think the biggest worry for me, and we've seen this across Monday.com, they just right, they just had their earnings. And of course, Monday and Salesforce are completely different companies, but we, we see this in tech sales. We saw this in 2022, longer sales cycles, right? I mean, these companies sell to enterprises and enterprises are other big companies. And as we look around, and of course, 22 is a year of austerity. Everyone was trying to figure out how do we become profitable? How do we, you know, 23 again was that as well. It's like, how do we, you know, really begin to shrink our losses and, and this and that, which includes maybe not purchasing that, you know, million or $2 million, um, software bundle from a Salesforce or a Monday.com. And so my biggest worry for Salesforce in 24, and you know, I would call that out a little bit there, was challenging sales cycles. I, I really think that that will be the determining factor um, as it relates to Salesforce in, in 2024. Very good. Anything else you'd care to share with investors about your top picks, about portfolio updates, or anything that you would care to share with them in terms of how to look at the market right now? I think the only thing I'd mention is, you know, Rena, we talked about back in August, I think it was mid-August of 23 when we last spoke on this podcast, talked about Broadcom being one of my favorite names for the rest of the year. Stock price is up 50% since then. That was exciting. So fingers crossed we see similar momentum with a, a name like Salesforce. And, you know, I'm, I'm eager for SPYI and QQQI to continue to generate income within my portfolio. But, you know, to me right now, what is, again, pretty exciting is this sort of historical trend with the Russell 2000. I think that 
um, we might see a little bit of momentum um, as it relates to to the Russell 2000 and, and 24 and 25. So um, I'm excited to keep an eye on that as well. And of course, focused on profitability and cash flow and, and my specific call outs. And um, you're more than welcome to check out the Rich Habits podcast on Spotify. We're the we're number one business podcast on Spotify, uh, about 75,000 weekly listeners over there. Um, I've got a TikTok account at Austin Hankwitz, Twitter, Instagram, all the same stuff. And then I also have uh, a newsletter called Rate of Return. But more importantly, I write analysis over here on Seeking Alpha. So give me a follow. Eager to uh, share another update in six months. Any articles discussed today, you can find links to them on our show notes. And all episodes have transcripts available on Seeking Alpha. And for those wanting to follow breaking news and general news coverage of the markets, come listen with us at Wall Street Breakfast. Morning episodes released before 7 a.m. Eastern and afternoon episodes released around 12 noon Eastern. We've got Wall Street Breakfast and Wall Street Lunch for all your market news needs. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.